I'd like to <coughs> tonight, um, based on a sutta, number 18 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Madhupindika Sutta. Starts like this. Thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Sakyan country at Kapalavatu in Nagroda's park. Then, when it was morning, the Blessed One dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Kapalavatu for alms. When he had wandered for alms in Kapalavatu and had returned from his alms round, after his meal, he went to the great wood for the day's abiding and entering the great wood, sat down at the root of a bilva sapling for the day's abiding. Dandapani the Sakyan, while walking and wandering for exercise, also went to the great wood. And when he, when he entered the great wood, he went to the bilva sapling where the Blessed One was and exchanged greetings with him. When this courteous and amiable talk was finished, he sat at one side, leaning on his stick, and asked the Blessed One, What does the recluse assert? What does he proclaim? Now, to give you a bit of background, Dandapani, the Sakyan, is a bit like what his name sounds like, a bit of a dandy, and apparently he walked around with a gold cane, even though he was young and healthy, and had a bit of a reputation as someone who was a little arrogant. And apparently his questioning of the Buddha is considered somewhat arrogant and not very polite. But the Buddha doesn't uh, take uh, any, make any problem of that and just responds to him. And he says, Friend, I assert and proclaim such a teaching that one does not quarrel with anyone in the world with its gods, its maras, and its brahmas. In this generation with its recluses and brahmans, its princes, and its people, such a teaching that perceptions no more underlie that Brahman who abides detached from sensual pleasures without perplexity, shorn of worry, free from craving of any kind of being. When this was said, Dandapani the Sakyan shook his head, wagged his tongue, raised his eyebrows until his forehead was puckered in three lines. <laughs> then he departed, leaning on his stick. So that's meant to imply to us that he was quite confused and puzzled by what the Buddha had said to him. But apparently so were the bhikkhus who were around at the time listening to this. And so later in the day, they asked the Buddha, what, what did you mean by this, that perceptions no more underlie that person? And the Buddha replied, bhikkhus, as to the source through which perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a person, if nothing is found there to delight in, welcome and hold on to, this is the end of the underlying tendency to lust, to aversion, to views, to doubt, to conceit, to the desire for being, to ignorance, to resorting to rods and weapons of quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice and false speech. Here those evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. That is what the Blessed One said. Having said this, he left his seat and went to his dwelling. Now, apparently the bhikkhus still didn't understand quite what he meant by that and had to ask another of the Buddha's disciples to explain, which the sutta goes on to uh, tell what that uh, other person said, Mahakachana. But I'll explain it to you, seeing Mahakachana isn't here. <laughs> so what this sutta is about is that tendency of mind that we call mental proliferation, a concept known as papancha. 
And as the Buddha said, it's the cause of lust, aversion, uh, desire, ignorance, doubt, conceit, all kinds of dispute and disagreements. It's that tendency of mind to obsess, to run on and on and on about things, to fantasize, to live in a world of fantasy. It's like that ongoing commentary that we all have, I think, about life with us as the narrator and us as the star of the film, of the movie. It's also that voice that reminds me a little bit of a sports commentator. You know that they're there to add excitement to the game if what's happening isn't quite enough. Or what do you think he'll do with this one, Jim? I don't know. Last time he was in this situation, (laughs) he didn't handle it very well, you know. But he's looking very determined this time. I think he might make it. No, last time he was real shaky, you know. Remember he really, you know didn't do so well, oh no, it's looking really, you know, that thing where we're always commenting on, wondering about, comparing, contrasting, what's happening to us, trying to make life both more exciting and to make it seem that we're in some sort of control, that we know what's going on. And by doing this sort of commentary, we have that delusion, that illusion. And so the word is known, this, 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 this concept is known as papancha, It's hard to translate. I read a lot of different translations of the word, but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about when I describe it. The root meaning of the Pali word papancha means is things like spreading out, expansion, diffuseness, manifoldness. And I've seen it defined as complication or elaboration. But for me, I think the best uh, definition is mental proliferation. And you just get that sense of something out of one small seed, just expanding and going in all directions. Now this concept is uh, a very important one and is mentioned many, many times in the suttas because understanding the nature of our thoughts and how they impact our experience is very important uh, in the teachings of the Buddha and also central to the understanding of anatta, not self, because we start to see how with our thoughts, with those constructs of our thoughts, we create that sense of self that's separate from the world, that's, that's contrasted to the world, is often at odds with the world, this sense of self that's, that's who I am. Papancha is also seen as the cause of many difficult mind states, as the Buddhist listed uh, in the beginning of that sutta, of attachment, views, pride, ignorance, attachment to becoming, Uh, quarreling, slander and lying, all forms of conflict can be seen as the outcome of papancha. So I'd like to read to you the opening of a story that many of you may recognize uh, as it goes on. We're going through. The commander's voice was like thin ice breaking. He wore his full-dress uniform with a heavily braided white cap pulled down rakishly over one cold gray eye. We can't make it, sir. It's spoiling for a hurricane, if you ask me. I'm not asking you, Lieutenant Berg, said the commander. Throw on the power lights. Rev her up to 8,500. We're going through. The pounding of the cylinders increased. Tapocketa, pocketa, 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 pocketa. The commander stared at the ice forming on the pilot window. He walked over and twisted a row of complicated dials. Switch on number eight auxiliary, he shouted. Switch on number eight auxiliary, repeated Lieutenant Berg. Full strength in number three turret, shouted the commander. Full strength in number three turret. The crew, bending to their various tasks in the huge, hurtling eight-engine Navy hydroplane, looked at each other and grinned. 
The old man will get us through, they said to one another. The old man ain't afraid of hell. Not so fast. You're driving too fast, said Mrs. Mitty. What are you driving so fast for? Hmm, said Walter Mitty. He looked at his wife in the seat beside him with shocked astonishment. (laughs) So I wonder if you recognize yourself in Walter Mitty. You know, I think we enjoy it so much because it really relates to our habits of mind of creating this much more exciting world than the one we actually inhabit. You know, when we're not quite good enough, strong enough, good-looking enough, thin enough, wise enough, in our thoughts, in our fantasies, we're always offering ourselves this potential that's much more than who we actually are. And it's interesting to note, and you'll catch this as I go through the talk, how Walter Mitty's fantasies are always stimulated by that sound, tapakata, tapakata, pakata, pakata, that he hears, you know, in different situations in a hospital and he becomes a surgeon or out on the road and he becomes a racing car driver or, you know, wherever it might be. It stimulates that urge to fantasy in his mind when he's trapped there in the car with, with Mrs. Mitty and it's not quite good enough. So how does papancha work? What, what's the process of papancha? There are actually a few different uh, definitions of the process of papancha in different suttas. You'll see it laid out um, slightly differently depending on the emphasis the Buddha had in a particular sutta. Sometimes he was focusing more on the way it led into conflict. Um, but I like the definition in this sutta because it's, it's fairly simple and it's one we can relate to directly. So the sequence is something like this. Contact, feeling, perception, thinking, leading to the perceptions and categories of papancha. So you can see from that that papancha is actually a development. It comes out of thinking, the normal tendency of mind. And you'll see if you were here a couple of weeks ago when Guy went through the sequence of dependent origination, Paticca Samuppada, that the beginning of it is a bit like that sequence. It's, It's very similar. It starts with contact. That's contact of the six senses. Any contact that impinges on the six senses, whether it's sight or sound or hearing or, or thoughts, that's a contact. It moves on to having a feeling about that contact, about that sensual impingement. Feeling is that quality of Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, that's associated with every sense contact that we have. And then a perception arises based on that joining of contact and feeling, contact and Vedana. And perception in this case means recognizing something, naming it, labeling it. You know, usually at some form of memory comes into play of recognizing, oh, that's a bell, you know, I know what that is. And usually that perception is by its very nature somewhat subjective and conditioned. The way we respond or understand something is due to our past experiences that we bring into this moment though often we don't realize that, we don't understand that, we don't acknowledge that uh, subjectivity of perception. And then the Buddha points out, we start to think about what we perceive, we start to dwell on it. The thinking can be fairly simple, but it very easily moves into what's known as papancha, this roller coaster of thoughts and feelings and images and fantasies, dislikes, judgments, you know, criticisms, whatever it might be. The key is when papancha is happening, we're lost in it. We're really not aware of what's going on. We're so into the thoughts, the feelings, the fantasy. 
simple uh, illustration I came up with just in thinking about my past day. I remember sitting in my interview room with the door open and someone walking by across my field of vision and I noticed a hat. So that was a sense contact, just of sight of a hat. And then my next thought was, oh, nice hat. You know, there was liking. I liked that hat. And then I started to look at that. Oh, green, velvet, embroidered. Oh, I like that hat. Well, I wonder where she got that hat. How would I look in that hat? I wonder, you know, could I get that hat? And then what would I wear that hat? You know, in a space of a second, I went from just, you know, very peacefully looking out my door and seeing hat to, you know, having a whole creation of self wearing that hat in different outfits. What would it go with? You know, it's amazing how quickly it happens. And it creates this strong sense of self just in a moment. And here in the retreat, by this stage of the retreat, with the end just starting to come a little bit into sight, maybe you've noticed, just around the corner perhaps, lots of these kinds of mind streams start to happen. I'm actually um, just been through the process. We're in the middle of planning a trip to Australia to visit my family. Uh, Guy and I are both traveling there, actually, for me, three days after the retreat ends. But I've been planning it for a couple of months, you know, buying the tickets, talking to my friends and family about timing and when I'd be there and what we'd do, and etc. So my thoughts have been turning naturally to Australia, the place I was born, that uh, I grew up in. Um, and different images would come up, you know, as my mind would turn, you know, my family, my home, and other images. And the more, you know, it became um, something that I turned to again and again, the images would get more diffuse. I mean, as, as in, they would multiply. I would have related images. Oh, there's this place. Oh, yes, and that, you know, that's nearby, and this person might be there. And I became very aware of this process that I realized I've gone through every time I plan a trip to Australia. And I left there 20 years ago. I must have gone back 10 times since then. And I realized I went through this whole process every time of, you know, the mind turning more and more. You know, the, at first just the images of the things close to home, of family and my, my home where I'm, my father lives, etc. And then spreading out a little and eventually turning to an old workplace, a place where I used to work now more than 20 years ago. And then the people that work there, you know, that I haven't seen for 20 years. And then wondering, oh, how are they, I wonder, these days? What are they doing? You know, haven't seen them for so long. What would it be like if I went back and got in touch? You know, that would be so fun to see them again. What would they look like now? It's 20 years later. Would they look older? Would I look older? What would I look like, you know, if I went back and saw them compared to what I look like then? You know, maybe I've put on a bit of weight since then. You know, maybe I should go on a diet before I go back to Australia. You know, I should really join the gym and start exercising. And You know, that would be good. I'd go back and, you know, they'd think I looked pretty good still, you know, not really aging that much or whatever. And, and then I think, I wonder what they think of what I'm doing now. You know, I'm, I'm into meditation now. I was not into that at all. I wonder what they'd think of that. And well, I'm actually teaching meditation now. Gosh, you know, they might be impressed by that, but I'm <laughs> teaching meditation, you know. And I go through this whole thing where, you know, I'm back in Australia and I'm thinner and I'm wiser and I'm teaching meditation. And I, it just had to make me laugh that, you know, not only had I created this sense of self in this world, but I was thinner and I was wiser and I was just much more impressive than I actually am. And the thing is, the other thing I realized is I've done that every time I've planned a trip to Australia. And I have never called these people. You know, I've been going back 10 times. I've never called them. 
I hope finally I've given up on that fantasy, but I must admit I saw it coming through these last few days of, oh, I could call them. <laughs> it's amazing. At least I cut it off. I didn't go through the whole sequence of how we would look and everything. So that's what we do. You know, we lurch forward into the future and we create this sense of self. We create a self that's better than, different, often sometimes even worse than who we actually are. It's always, you know, fighting reality, fight, fighting the way things actually are. Another teacher, Lee Brasington, tells this great story um, that illustrates the development of Papancha. He says, it goes like this, a woman wants some potatoes for the meal she is cooking, so she sends her husband to the marketplace to buy potatoes. As he walks out the door, she calls after him, be sure and get a good price. So all the way to the marketplace, the man is thinking about potatoes and what he'll have to pay. If he buys the very best potatoes, he knows he'll have to pay more than if he buys lesser quality potatoes. On the other hand, the lesser quality potatoes are just that, not so good. In fact, he knows he'll have to be very careful in buying other than top price potatoes because the seller might try to stick him with a bad potato, even a rotten potato. When he thinks of someone cheating him by giving him a rotten potato, he gets really mad. Why do people have to be so greedy as to stick me with a rotten potato? Just at this point, he reaches a stall of the potato seller and screams at him, you can keep your rotten potatoes, and walks off. So it just goes to show how we create this world with actions and reactions out of one seed of one thought that in itself was quite neutral. Yet the whole world of aversion and conflict can be created. I think that Mark Twain was talking about Papancha when he said something like, "My life has been one series of disaster, uh, one series, a series of one disaster after another, most of which never happened." <laughs> can you relate all the projections we've made of what could or might or hopefully doesn't happen? Once we start to look at this process of papancha, of mental proliferation, we can really see how perception, that singling out and naming of objects, conditions and our experience and feeds the papancha, feeds what happens, the process. There's so many examples of this in the media. You know, we just have to open a newspaper or listen to the radio and hear people's papancha being broadcast, being, being put out in paper. People actually get paid for papancha. It's, it's amazing. You know, there are those pages in the newspaper of editorial columns, and most of the time I just pass them by, and every now and then I think, maybe I'm missing something. You know, maybe someone's going to say something really interesting today. So I read one, and I realize they're just sort of mushing words around and taking current events and, and putting a slant on them this way or that way. But they're not really saying anything constructive or creative. And it's just pages and pages of that in the, in the paper, on the radio. And talk about uh, perceptions coloring our experience, reviews of movies. You know, have you ever read a, movie, read a review of a movie where it says something about this lighthearted comedy and you go to see it and it's about neurotic people and it's got violence and, you know, undertones of a lot of greed and aversion? And you sort of, what was that person seeing? You know, it's not my experience at all, or, you know, the film critics, Ebert and Roper now, you know, arguing with each other about whether a film was good or not, you know, and it's obvious there's no ultimate truth about that. Our perceptions that we bring into the experience color how we see what in some ways is a fairly objective thing. It's this movement of light and sound 
on, on the film, on the screen. But we have such different reactions to it. It's interesting how we assume that what we see and experience has some objective reality to it. But look at the difference, reflect on the difference when people, two people say, look at the same thing. I know if you go out into a landscape and you're a bird watcher, you might see the movements of birds, the, the appearance of birds and the habitat that different birds like. Or if you're a farmer in that same landscape, you'd just be looking at the quality of the soil or what crops might grow there. I remember um, oh, just this, this today having lunch with Gil and he was saying his experience of going out for a walk in nature has really changed since he's been with his wife Tamara because she's a botanist and uh, they would go out for walks together and he'd say, oh, look at this lovely vista, you know, all these flowers and plants. And she'd go, no, that's a noxious weed and that's an invasive coming up from Mexico. We've got to get rid of that. And that really shouldn't be here. And he said, what? You know, it's just flowers. And he said his experience of being out in nature has totally changed because of her conditioning and her knowledge that she's bringing to that experience. The Buddha made this challenging statement. In whatever way you conceive of an object, it is other than that. In whatever way you conceive of an object, it is other than that. Sort of mind-stopping to realize how subjective our experience of the external world is. To know that what we take to be so solid and true to someone else can seem very different. Another world altogether. So we start to see how much our conditioning, once we take that in and really look and see that it's true, how much our conditioning filters what we see. And it's even happened now that science has really agreed with the Buddha. The very fact of participating in an experiment and observing something actually changes what happens in what's being observed. So again, to go through a bit of the process of Papancha and how it works. That first part of the sequence of sense contact to Vedna or or the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant or neutral is almost impersonal. It's somewhat automatic. You know, obviously we can't control the sense impressions that we have. They arise out of conditions of whatever's around us and our past experience. Um, So they just happen. We hope you've got that by now, that you can't control that. And even the movement into Vedana is somewhat impersonal. It, it happens very automatically, even though that too is conditioned. But once we get to perception, then it does become very personal and subjective. And once we think about those perceptions, the process often becomes inevitable, almost uncontrollable. That roller coaster that I spoke about starts. One of the books that I read to, to prepare for this talk is by uh, Bhikkhu Nyanananda, a book called Concepts and Reality, and it's all about this process of papancha. And he says about the inevitability that happens once we start on that slope of papancha, once we start getting involved in the thinking process and lost in it. He says, one who has been the subject now becomes the hapless object. So where at first we were there in the picture, then the thought process itself actually takes over and has more control over us than we do of it. He goes on to say, like the legendary resurrected tiger which devoured the magician who restored it to life out of its skeletal bones, 
the concepts and linguistic conventions overwhelm the worldling, that's us, who evolved them. At the final and crucial stage of sense perception, the concepts are, as it were, invested with objective character. Out of the skeleton of thought, we've created this tiger that turns around and bites us, that actually devours us, that takes over our experience. And it's interesting to see how once the papancha starts, we invest it with a a certain authority, a certain reality, just because of the mere fact that it's there. We identify with it and we think that it must be true just because we're feeling it, just because we're thinking it. We give it a validity, we give it a reality. And in some ways we're not much encouraged to question our thoughts and our feelings. You know, it's the old, we feel them, therefore it must be true. We have them, they must be valid, must be rightful responses to what's happening in the world. But the Buddha actually begged to differ. He could, because he saw how these, the, the mainstreams of this type of thought, this type of thought of proliferation of papancha, usually leads to difficult or unwholesome mind states. That it's very connected to and on it often manifests through or as those three very difficult mind states of craving, tanha, conceit, or mana, and views, or ditti. And it's, it's actually fundamental to all three. Usually if we're lost in one of those, or perhaps all three of them, papancha is at work. There's some solidification around a thought process that's landing us in that, that place of craving, conceit, or holding on to views and opinions. And when we're not aware of this tendency of mind, this proliferating tendency, that's often where we end up. We end up in craving or aversion, And it's typically manifested in thoughts such as, this is mine. That's sort of the shorthand for all those thoughts of craving or aversion, claiming something, this is mine. Or comparing and judging, mana, conceit, this I am, I'm like this, this is is who I am. And then holding strongly onto views and opinions with thoughts like, "This this is myself, my beliefs, my opinions, solidifying around them, creating a sense of self, around them. So Papancha often ends up in these places of comparing, of craving, and of creating and holding on to strong views and opinions. But it's important to recognize that, of course, not all thoughts are Papancha. If you remember the sequence of contact, um, Vedana, perception, thinking, and then Papancha, there's a, a, a place there of thinking that's not yet Papancha. So when we just stop at thinking, we're not caught. Uh, In my example, if I just stopped at nice hat, you know, that's just a thought. But it's that proliferation of craving, of wanting, of becoming that creates the papancha, that is the papancha. When we're engaged in reflection or inquiry, when there's a clarity of uh, clear seeing around our thought processes, also not papancha. Thoughts of metta, generosity and kindness, when there's not a grasping at things, uh, not papancha. Anytime we're not lost in the story, where we have a real awareness of our situation, we're not in papancha. And even, even some planning can be done without papancha. You know, you might decide to paint your kitchen. So you think, well, I need to go to the hardware store. We need to get paint, brushes, 
tops, you know, cleaning things, stirring things, whatever the list might be, whatever you need to do to just paint the kitchen, take care of that. It's just organizing things in the mind. So the clue is that we're not lost in the process. We're not creating a sense of self out of that. But then if we start to fantasize or think, well, I wonder how the kitchen will look when I paint it, you know, and imagining that and then thinking, well, I should have some friends around and see what they think. Oh, I'll invite so-and-so to dinner, you know. They can come and look and I wonder if they'll like it. They'll probably like it. They'll probably think it's really good. They'll probably really compliment me on my, you know, sense of aesthetics. And maybe they'll ask me to come and, you know, help them when they have to paint their house. Maybe I really should become an interior decorator, you know. That is Papancha. So how to work with this tendency that's so inherent, so common? The simplest advice the Buddha gave was to seclude the senses. So it's just actually minimizing the sense context that are the beginning of this sequence. Um, and we do this here on retreat. That's one of the benefits of the simple life we live here on retreat is without so many impingements on the senses where things are fairly contained, we have the chance to reflect on this process. We have more space. We have more clarity. We can see what's happening. As the Buddha said, If there is nothing found there to delight in, welcome and hold on to, this is the end of the underlying tendency to lust, aversion, views, doubts, conflicts, and on and on and on. And in this, he doesn't mean, you know, that there should be no joy or delight in the world, but he's referring to what happens when we attach to something, when, as he said, we welcome and hold on to it, when we look to those objects to give us happiness and having them be a certain way is the only way they can give us that happiness. When we're trying to find that happiness in the external objects of the world that, as we've said again and again, can't really provide us that happiness because of their impermanence, because of their very nature. And he's talking about that disenchantment that leads to dispassion that Guy spoke of in the chain of dependent origination that leads then on to liberation. He's talking about when we can be with our experience in a balanced, open, and connected way, allowing things to be as they are, not wanting them to be different, connected, alive, and vibrant, but not pushing away or holding on to anything. So our best ally in this is our mindfulness. So we really know what's going on, what this process is. When we're mindful of the process leading to papancha, leading to craving, conceit, and views and opinions, we can work with it skillfully. So just becoming familiar with the process. We can start to see thoughts for what they are. We can see, and I think we've said this before, see that thoughts only have the power that we choose to give them. That's such a powerful line. When I first heard that, it was like, right, of course, you know, there's a choice we have here. So we, we know if, what thoughts are. We see their nature. We see their impermanence. We see their transparency. We know that when we see them like that, we have a choice of how to respond, how to react. We don't have to blindly follow them. We don't have to indulge in them. There is a way out when we're caught just by turning the power of mindfulness on, the light of mindfulness onto the situation. So we can name the type of thought that's really helpful. Or even give a name to the whole construct. This type of time in the retreat, it might be going home or you know, seeing Melinda or whatever that might be. Whatever it is that you find yourself caught in again and again, 
give it a label so that when it happens, the chance of you being aware of getting lost in it is more likely to occur and sooner and sooner as, as you become used to it. And it's just a process of understanding it, knowing this tendency, seeing it operate, and knowing that there's a way out, that mindfulness actually can free us of the process. I was reflecting just recently about a difficult family situation that I have actually back in Australia, one of my Australia thoughts that was coming up. And I had this thought about someone back there, uh, someone in my family, that was I hadn't really thought about this person before. I hadn't thought this had this um, assumption or this feeling about this person before. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, that's interesting. And I, but I saw that if I if I hadn't seen that thought for what it was, just a thought, and if I'd bought into it, it really could have changed my relationship to that person. And the truth is, I don't know if it's true or not. It was just a, a way I had of, you know, holding what, they, their, what their actions were or what they did, why they did it. And I didn't know if it was true. But if I had just brought in, bought into it, taken it to be true because I had thought it, I know that when I see this person next, my relationship to them would be changed because of this one thought that went through. And helpful to see how this rush of thoughts creates a sense of self. In those, all those examples I get, gave of how we get separated from what's happening right now and from others around us. We separate, we, we pull out, we, we compare, we judge when these thoughts happen. And when this stream of thoughts is noticed, that tendency, that separation, that creation of self can be cut through. As I said, a really important aid to our understanding and our opening to the teaching of non-self. Of this self is just this constellation of, of thoughts and feelings, a construct that we actually don't have to buy into again and again and again. When these thoughts are noticed, this creation of self is noticed, the fantasies are noticed, their power is reduced. There's a sense of spaciousness that opens up, a sense of possibility a sense of liberation, that we're not bound into this box of who we thought we were or should be or might be in this fantasy world of the future. Was it really helpful for me uh, in working with fantasies, papancha type of thoughts when I, at one retreat I started to reflect on when I found myself in the midst of yet another one how many I'd had, especially on retreats, you know, we really notice them on retreats in the quiet when a lot of the time there's mindfulness and the constellation that we make of self becomes much more obvious, I really reflected how none of those fantasies had ever actually come true. I mean, not even close. You know, all of the imaginings I'd had about reunions with people or parties that I'd throw or changes I'd make to my house, you know, you know I'd re-landscape the yard and redecorate the, the bathroom or whatever it might be, never. You know, none of the things that I spent hours on in retreat planning and getting excited about or worrying about, when I really reflected, they didn't come true. And it was such a sort of splash of cold water onto that tendency to think of the hours that I had wasted caught up in these imaginings that never were constructive because they didn't actually, you know, it wasn't like planning thoughts of, yes, I'll do A, B, and C, it was like off the map, you know, double X, double Y, you know, it wasn't ever going to come through. 
So it was a really helpful breakthrough, cutting through to me of that for me of that that tendency. Unfortunately, not completely, but it ha- definitely helped. The Buddha also distinguished between what he called wise and unwise attention. Wise attention is yoniso manasikara. And yoni is actually um, a Pali word for womb or womb-like, which I think is a very nice uh, way to conceive of it. A place that's nurturing, a place that's safe, a place that's good for us to be, a place where it's okay, you know, when we're in this place, wholesome things are being cultivated. So with wise attention, we're safe, we're cultivating the wholesome. When we have a problem, when something difficult has come up, we can dwell on it, we can get caught in it, the problems about it, the thoughts, the drama, the fear about it, the anxiety, we can stew on it. The Buddha considered that unwise attention when it's not being constructive, when we're just caught and dwelling in a particular mind stream. When we have a problem, we can also be mindful of it, we can be clear about it, we can reflect on it, but not be so lost in the selfness of it, the I-ness of it, the meanness of it, not so much caught in eyeing and myeing, as I said in my talk on Anatta. Unwise attention focuses on this sense of self and those types of thoughts that, that I talked about earlier of I am this, this is mine, this I am, you know, my thoughts, my beliefs, my experience. It dwells on cultivating that sense of self, not seeing through it. Wise attention is connected to our present moment experience. It's alive and awake and knowing what's going on for us here and now. It's a fertile ground for insight because we bring to it clarity. And in that wise attention, Yoniso Manisikara, it's a wholesome place, a place that leads us into skillful states of mind, wholesome states of mind. When we see through the fiction of self, <coughs> oh, excuse me. When we start to see through this fiction of a sense of self, when we see how we create this sense of self out of our thoughts, out of papancha, when we see it is just created, that it doesn't have an abiding, permanent, ongoing reality, we can start to lose the tendency to conflict, to separating ourselves from others and differentiating ourselves. We can start to lessen the tendency towards views and opinions, that what I know and think is right, is the only way, is the way that everyone else should think, is what, you know, the way things are. We start to gradually cut through that, to see it as just a construct, as not something with external objective reality. When we're caught in papancha, when we realize that that's what's going on, you know, open to that mindfulness just uh, kicks in and we see what's going on, that we're on this roller coaster, that we're caught in the fantasy, caught in the, the um, illusion, it's really helpful to bring some awareness into the body. What I find when I, when I come into that moment of mindfulness, that there's often strong sensations associated with papancha. Could be the heart beating a little p- faster, feelings of constriction or excitement, tension, tightness, um, particular places in the body, you might experience that. I've really noticed for myself how any time there's, um, a, uh, there are thoughts that create a sense of self, I feel a physical constriction. 
it's interesting to investigate this. You know, if you come into a moment of mindfulness where you realize that there's really been a strong sense of self created, just to immediately go to the body and see what's there. And I've noticed that time and time again, these thoughts that create a sense of self, for me it's mainly in the eyes, my eyes sort of start to tighten and screw up, and my forehead. And I know if I can just tune into that, oh, I've been identified, I've been caught in something. So for you it may be somewhere different, but it's helpful to know that as a cue. And once we let go a little of that tension, the thoughts of self, the sense of self, can also reduce. So it's helpful to become familiar with that process. To, to, to when the mindfulness kicks in, where there's awareness of what's going on, drop into the body and see if what's happening, if there is that sense of constriction. When we use these interventions, when we start to practice or try to work with the process of papancha or mental proliferation, it's helpful to do it with as much kindness and compassion as we can bring to it. Even humor. You know, once I started to see this story, I told myself about Australia. I mean, now when it comes up, it's sort of, again, you know, do you have to go through that again for the X time? You know, it really helps just to put it in context. It's papancha. It's just papancha. It's the tendency of mind. You know, we've conditioned ourselves to do it. It's natural that we should do it, you know, and if we don't, if we're not aware of it, it's natural that we'll continue doing it. You know, we've spent so much time in our Walter Mitty world of how things could or should be, if only, you know, we could arrange things in a certain way. So just to be able to say, you know, here we are again, just papancha, papancha at work. It's important to acknowledge the strength of that tendency to see how conditioned it is, how automatic that sliding is from just a simple thought about something, you know, nice hat, into this whole creation of self, to see it's, it's really understandable that we get caught, but to know that, that there is a way out, that it's not inevitable, that we have a choice. Once we start to see it for what it is, just a construct of thoughts, of images, of feelings, drop down into the body, that freedom can be found. But sometimes that's the, what we call a sort of wisdom is necessary. You know that one, enough already, you know, all right, I've heard it, shut up, whatever your words might be of just, okay, you know, I've been through that loop X number of times, you know, and maybe the ending's different, but the, the, the feeling, the, 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 the fantasy basically is the same, and the reality of it is certainly the same. So the more we can understand that, that our moods and responses, our thoughts and feelings are not objective truths about the world, about ourselves, but they're part of a causal process, as Sylvia was saying, a lawful process due to causes and conditions, not ultimate reality. Once we start to really understand that, to take that in as an insight, the tendency towards proliferation is undercut. And this is not to deny, you know, the richness of our inner life, of, of uh, the world of emotions and feelings. They're obviously very important and uh, um, connecting part of our world, you know, full of joy and appreciation and love and, and compassion. But this teaching offers us a different way of being with some of those experiences where we get caught in them, we identify with them, we're lost in them, where we're actually removing us from reality and from connection because we're lost 
in a world of our own creation. And then, if once we see this, we can perhaps choose to cultivate those kinds of thoughts that lead us to more wholesomeness, to more skillfulness, to more wisdom, to compassion, to harmony in our relationships, to connectedness and and clarity. And we see more quickly those thoughts and those tendencies that lead to creating that sense of self, that lead to separation, lead to isolation, lead to conflict and suffering. It can be really helpful to find refuges that give us a break from uh, a lot of the input, the sense contact that that leads us into papancha, leads us into proliferation. And this modern busy world of ours is one that definitely cultivates a world of papancha. You You just have to take in some advertisements that offer us so easily the promise of this wonderful happy life where we just bounce through the meadows smelling flowers by using a certain deodorant or shampoo to see that this world encourages papancha. And so removing ourselves from that as we do in retreat or in our daily lives, just taking a break in nature or in something a little simpler, things of beauty that actually still the mind and bring us into the present moment are a great antidote for papancha and that tendency for proliferation. And that beauty naturally stills the mind We don't have to make an effort. It's just a natural response to the wonder and the majesty of nature. And when the mind finally quietens through whatever means, whether it's a grace that sometimes happens or being in nature or through wisdom, through seeing clearly, it's such a relief. You know, when we find ourselves not caught up, when we see the end of Papancha and there's that space, it's such a relief to let go at that point to let go of the whirlwind in the mind and the constriction in the body. And we can start to get a sense that this is our true nature, not the running commentary, not the sports commentator, you know, controlling and narrating our experience. We've given many instructions during this retreat about paying attention to the wholesome states of mind that we find ourselves experiencing, like calm and peace compassion and tranquility to really know how important it is that we open ourselves to them and really experience them fully so that they become more part of who we see ourselves to be, not something separate that can only be gained in in certain moments and that's, that's separate from us, separate from who we are. And once we start to appreciate these wholesome qualities of peace and quietness and tranquility and calm, we're more motivated to work with the tendency of mind that leads us into confusion, to the whirlwind of papancha, to the separation, to the holding of views, to the conflict, because we've had a taste of what it's like when that's not there, when the mind isn't so caught up and driven and in a whirlwind. And so we start to see that this process of papancha is not inevitable. We're not at the mercy of it, not like the magician with the tiger that he created out of skeleton bones and ended up devouring him. Papancha doesn't have to control us. We have a choice. It's not inevitable. And that our true home, our true nature, is one of connection and clarity, wisdom and compassion. I'll just finish by reading the end of the sutta, the Madhupindika Sutta after Mahakachana had explained to the bhikkhus 
what mental proliferation was and how one becomes free of it. And apparently he explained to the bhikkhus, they were delighted and they went back to the Buddha and said, Dear sir, this is what Mahakachana told us and they repeated it all again. So you get it three times in the sutta as they like to do. Great deal of repetition. And the Buddha said, Mahakachana is wise, bhikkhus. Mahakachana has great wisdom. If you had asked me the meaning of this, I would have explained it to you in the same way that Mahakachana has explained it. Such is the meaning of this, and so you should remember it. I hope you would say it about my teaching of it. I'm not sure I'm quite as accurate as Mahakachana, but anyway. When this was said, Venerable Nanda said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, just as if a man, exhausted by hunger and weakness, came upon a honey ball in the course of eating, in the course of eating it, he would find a sweet, delectable flavor. And a honey ball is a, a very delicious sweet that they had in India at that time, obviously made of honey and very uh, delicious. So too, Venerable Sir, any able-minded bhikkhu, in the course of scrutinizing with wisdom the meaning of this discourse on the Dharma, would find satisfaction and confidence of mind. Venerable Sir, what is the name of this discourse on the Dharma? As to that, Ananda, the Buddha said, you may, you may remember this discourse on the Dharma as the Honeyball Sutta. That is what the Blessed One said. The Venerable Ananda was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So he considered this teaching so sweet that he named it the Honeyball Sutta. And it's sweet because it shows us, as the Buddha's teachings do, the way out of suffering. And that the way out of suffering is available to us here and now in any moment that we see clearly the way things are and aren't caught up in thoughts of self and other, of I and mine, my views, my opinion. When we see through that construct, we're in that place of freedom right here and right now. So let's sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.